Please rise with me as we read from God's Word. We're going to be reading uh, two sections, one uh, rather decently sized one and another just one verse. So, and they're from uh, the first chapter of John and the third chapter of 1 John. John chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. You may be seated. But we want to thank you a lot for your word and for the ability a lot to know more about you. And we pray that as we sit in your presence, that your spirit will illuminate our hearts and our minds a lot, so that uh, whatever we learn and discuss and read today might become real in our lives. In the name of your beautiful Son, we ask. Amen. We have an idea of what it means to have a father. Uh, what it means to be a father, the expectations that are contained within that concept. But what that illustration conveys is the disappointment that many people have when the ideals of fatherhood are not real to them in their own personal lives because their own fathers do not meet that standard. Or sometimes, or many times, because the father is missing. But where does that ideal come from? Who is the standard bearer for fatherhood? And the Christian says that it is God, specifically the first person of the Trinity, whom we call God the Father. Now, last week, our brother Luigi took us through the doctrine of the Trinity, showing us the mystery that is the triune nature of God, the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, when the topics for um, this series on systematic theology were being allocated, I took the topic... Uh, before us today, which is God the Father, because I kind of know how difficult it is to do uh, God the Son, and it's extremely difficult in our context to do the Holy Spirit. So I'm like, okay, I'll take God the Father. Little did I realize that actually that most systematic uh, theology books, for example, do not actually cover the doctrine of God the Father separately. Um, they have separate sections for the Son and the Holy Spirit, but in general... Theology is considered to contain within it the doctrine of the first person of the Trinity, uh, which is God the Father. So I spent quite a few days trying to figure out the best way to approach this topic. Um, And when you read through the Bible systematically to learn more about the Father, you will realize three things, at least I did. First, it is Jesus who fully reveals the person of the Father to us in the New Testament. See, the concept of God as Father is 
is there in the Old Testament, but it is not one of the dominant themes of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus as the Son shows us the true nature and the true beauty of the Father. There is a progressive revelation, as we uh, discussed last week, from the Old Testament to the New Testament that unveils the majesty of the Trinity and specifically of the Father. Now, the second thing you'll realize is that every member of the Trinity is instrumental in every doctrine of the Bible, be that salvation or sin or man and so on. So you cannot get away from the influence of the Trinity on, on every aspect of our faith. But it is truly astounding to realize how the doctrines are intertwined with each person of the Godhead. So when we look at the attributes of God the Father, you will see that they are actually essential to understanding the Christian faith. And finally, you will realize what a truly amazing thing it is to say or to claim that God is your Father. See, that is a level of intimacy that will be called blasphemy by every religion in the world because the depth of what that idea conveys is remarkable. It is saying that our human expectations of fatherhood, the rights and the privileges that come from being children of a father, can be placed on the creator of the universe. So we are claiming a relationship that should have no right to exist, but it does. That we, in our frailty and in our temporal nature, are children not just subjects, not just followers, but children of the eternal, immortal God. So today in our brief time together, I want to cover three areas that are relevant to understanding the first person, which is God the Father. So these three things are, what do we mean when we say that God is the Father? How is he a father to us? And finally, how are we to be children? To him. What do we mean when we say God is the Father? How is He a Father to us? And how are we to be children to Him? See, the Bible talks about the fatherhood of God. Um, talk of God as Father, we do not mean all of these things, but it is helpful to understand them so that we can see the, the different levels of intimacy that is conveyed in each of God's roles as Father. Okay? So what do we mean when we say God is a Father? There are four relationships that are specifically mentioned in the Bible. The first one is, uh, you're going to notice that I'm going to do uh, three points but sub-points. So here's, here's how I'm going to break it down. Um, when we talk about when we say God is a Father, I have four sub-points. When we say, how is he a father to us, I have three, and then how are we to be children to him, I have three more. So just so that you don't get, you know, uh, confused. Maybe in your mind you can indent the point a little bit. Um, So fatherhood of God. The first way that he is a father, he is the father of all men because he's the creator of everyone. See, God created all human beings. So there's a fundamental relationship between God and people in which he is the father of all men and women. Specifically because God is spirit, 
It is in the realm of our spiritual nature that we can say that God is the Father of everyone. So if you were to read Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9, we read that we should be subject to the Father of our spirits. Okay? And, and more famously, in Paul's speech to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 28 and 29, he says, we are all, that is humanity without exception, we are all his offspring. But this is a relationship that is very general and it is lacking in the intimacy that we associate with fatherhood because of the fallen nature of men and women who have chosen to leave the family of God and run away from his providential care. So he's the father of all men. Secondly, in the Bible, he is the father of the nation of Israel. You know, like I mentioned at the beginning, the doctrine of God, the Father, is not very developed in the Old Testament. But where it is found in the Old Testament, it is almost always in reference to God as the Father of the nation of Israel. This relationship is the foundation of the covenant that existed between God and Israel. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 18, we read that God is the rock who gave birth to Israel. Similarly, in, if you read Jeremiah, he's a father to Israel, and Ephraim is his firstborn. And in his role as this covenantal father to the nation, God exercised an authority, but he also showed compassion to the children of Israel. So in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, uh, we read that when Israel was a child, God loved him, and out of Egypt... He called out his son. So what do we note here? We have to note that this is not a personal relationship. It is a relationship between God and the collective group of people that was the nation of Israel. Okay? This is not a personal relationship. It is a relationship between God and the entire nation. But in its concept of love and compassion and providence, as well as the fact that God acted as the redeemer of the nation, it is a taste of the fatherhood of God that is fully revealed in the New Testament through the Son of God. So that is the third way in which he is the father. The second one is he is the father of the nation of Israel. But the third way is that he is the father of Jesus, the Son of God. See, when we come to the New Testament from the Old Testament, there is this massive explosion in the number of references to God as father. Of course, that makes sense because the Trinity is being revealed uh, through the words of Jesus and the apostles. But even so, comparing the, the magnitude of the difference is amazing. The Old Testament could be said to refer to God as Father probably about 15 times. Okay? That's, that's including direct reference and probably allusions as well. 15 times. When we come to the New Testament, the Gospel of John alone has 100 references to God as Father. And the rest of the Gospels have it about 65 times. And then we have the letters and the epistles also having references to God as Father. You see that? The entire Old Testament has it 15 times, but the Gospel of John alone has 100 references to God as Father. And in the Gospels, and specifically in John, the majority of these references are to God as 
the Father of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the eternal Son, and his relationship with the Father is unique, and it cannot be replicated by any human being. The mechanism of this eternal, timeless relationship cannot be understood by us. See, there's an intimacy there between the first and the second persons of the Trinity that is incomprehensible. See, we know this verse from Matthew 11 and verse 27, in which Jesus claims that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And now notice this. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see the absoluteness of that claim. No one knows him like I do because I am his Son. That level of intimate, in-depth knowledge of, of the Father is a privilege that is given only to the Son of God. We cannot hope to approach that level of relationship. You know, unlike some, some false teachers and some cults which say that, you know, that, that we will truly become like Jesus in knowing the Father. That's not true. We cannot hope to know the Father like Jesus does. And, and here's a little exercise that, exercise that you can do. Read all the Gospels, all the passages where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and pick out one passage, any passage, in which Jesus refers to God as our Father. Okay? In the sense that he is the Father of both Jesus and the disciples in the same way and at the same time. And you will see that that is never the case. You know, when you think of our Father, you think of our Father in heaven, which is the Lord's Prayer. But that was a pattern that he was giving them to pray. But there's no verse in the Gospels in which Jesus says, God is our Father in that he is my Father and your Father in the same way and in the same time. And instead, what you see is a different way to refer uh, to these two relationships. And that you can find, for example, in John chapter 20 and verse 17. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Okay? So these are two separate relationships. But the beautiful thing about Jesus' relationship to the Father is that it shows us that it is indeed possible to relate to God in a personal sense that would have seemed alien to every person who existed before Jesus' time. See, no matter how close a Jew or a Jewish person felt to God, you know, as the covenantal father, as the father of Israel, there were some references that were off limits. So one of these references was Abba. So what is Abba? Abba is a term of endearment used by children to refer to their fathers only within the circle of family. So you wouldn't go out into the streets and call your father Abba. It was, it was, it was a term of, of, of endearment that has to be confined within the house, within the family. And, and what theologians have discovered is that the Jew avoided applying the word Abba to God. Even outside of prayers, there's not a single example of God being addressed as Abba in Judaism. 
that was a level of intimacy that they were not willing to claim. And yet in his hour of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible with thee. See, he's showing that it is possible to relate to God in a personal manner. And, and, and as we'll see, that type of intimacy is available even to us today as the followers of Jesus. So what Jesus shows us is the possibility of a relationship with God that has an intimacy and a freedom that far supersedes the boundaries of any human relationship. It is that God could be my father and your father. But as a father of Jesus, he shares a unique bond with him that cannot be ours. That relationship is exclusive within the Trinity, and it is a mark of divinity. That is why in John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, what did the Jews do? They picked up stones to kill him. They were accusing him of blasphemy, but it is the truth. He is the eternal, divine, holy Son of God. Now, the final way in which the Bible refers to God as Father, and this is what, you know, the aspect of God's fatherhood that, most comf- that is most comforting to us is that he's the father of those who are the adopted children of God. He's the father of those who are the adopted children of God. This is the relationship that is formed because of salvation, because of the work of the Son on the cross, dying in our stead, giving us the opportunity to be in fellowship with the Father. And you have to understand that it flows directly from the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and the Trinity. It was the Father's plan to redeem us, carried out willfully and obediently by the Son, and, and, and you know, with the, through the activity of the Holy Spirit, that now puts us in a position where we say we belong to the family of God. And we do not often see the Father as Redeemer, but He is, and He is instrumental in the process of salvation. So how do we become children of God? It is by faith in Christ Jesus. See, it is through our being found, our standing in Christ. So in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, that's our standing, you are all sons of God through faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Again, we are not children like Jesus is the Son of God. But we are adopted into the family of God. That's why if you go further down in Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 to 5, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of women, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that what? We might receive adoption as sons. Okay. Now what is adoption? Is it merely you know, some legal uh, fiction, a, a contract that you can rip apart and, and throw away? It isn't. See, in, 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 in the ancient world, in the context of the Bible, adoption is the, is, is the giving or, or, the, or the bestowal of a status whereby the father accepts a child as his own. Once and for all. What is adoption? It's the 
It is a father accepting a child as his own once and for all. It is a status that cannot be reverted. You know, the family relationships has changed from what was before to a new relationship. And that old relationship that existed cannot be restored. So adoption is thus once and for, is, is a once and for all process. That is why when we read our beginning passage in John chapter 1, uh, we read that, what did Jesus do? He gave us the right to become children of God. The right, right? Adoption is the gift of God, but it conveys a status that you can say is the right to be called the children of God. And that right comes with privileges. So, you know, in Romans, Paul says in chapter 8 that, um, chapter 8 and verse 17, it says that if you are children, what are you? You are heirs. You are heirs of God. So it's a right and it's a privilege. You know, as a theologian has said, adoption expresses the freedom of the Christian who needs to recognize no other tie but the will of God. It expresses the realization that God has committed himself to man and it expresses the trust which grows out of his fatherhood. It is a right, it is a privilege, it is freedom that we have to no longer be tied to earthly relationships but to the will of God. But more than that right of inheritance, what should absolutely thrill our hearts is the intimacy and the openness of the relationship that we can now share with the Father. And in a sense, Jesus showed what is possible, but today it can be real. You know, just like he cried out, Abba, Father, we can also call him Abba. You know, in one of the few references to Abba outside of the Gospels, we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, you know, again from Paul, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, the intimacy that Jesus shares with the Father is now, in a sense, a reality in our very own lives. We can be intimate with the Father as a child is within the confines of closed doors, resting secure in the knowledge that we have a heavenly Father who is eternally faithful to us, eternally watching over us, and eternally caring about us. So those are the four ways in which the Bible talks of God as Father. Now let's make it real. How is God a Father to us? And there are many ways to approach the, the, the various um, contours of God's fatherhood over us. But I want to focus specifically on three aspects. How is God a father to us? He's a father in his authority over us. He's a father in his uh, merciful and compassionate love for us. And he's a father because he is our true home. He has ultimate authority over us. You see, as father, God has ultimate authority over his family. In a sense, that authority extends over all mankind in his role as father to everyone. But specifically, you can see that authority over those whom he calls his own. So in the Old Testament, you know, we have read passages like, you know, in Isaiah, 
But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. See, as the potter, he's free to shape his creation in the manner that he desires. And that authority is evident in the New Testament as well. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? You know, what he teaches the disciples. It says, our Father, it's good, but it says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, he is our Father, but he's also in heaven. His name is hallowed. That conveys not just intimacy, but the, but the, the reverential acceptance of his authority. His kingdom will come. And his will will be done. See, that is not for us to allow. That's not what the prayer is saying, that you allow God's kingdom to come, that his, you allow his will to be done. But it is for, for us to accept joyfully that that is indeed what's going to happen because he has authority. Even Jesus' authority comes from where? It comes from the Father. So we read in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, um, in verse 18, Matthew chapter 28 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, all authority belongs to the Father, but it has been given to the Son. And in our own lives, God exercises his authority over us directly through the word of God and through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So all authority belongs to the Father. And you know what is really um, kind of need to understand is that all authority figures in our world also have their authority delegated to them by the Father. So you read the New Testament. Be that the rulers of the world or the masters of the world or the parents of the world. All of their authority does not come from within themselves. But if they have any authority, it's because God has allowed them to have that sphere of influence, of authority over us. That's why we are asked to submit to the earthly authorities. We are asked to submit to the rulers. We are asked to submit to the masters. We are asked to submit to our parents. But you know what's a sign of the fathers to authority? Is that if the earthly rulers, if your earthly masters, and even if your earthly parents go against the will of God, The father says his children are to obey God rather than men. That is true authority. So every other authority figure in the world has an authority that comes not from within themselves, but from God, the father. But if in their authority they go against the will of God, then he who is the true authority over us says, do not obey the will of men, but obey the will of God. So he is our true authority. Secondly, he is our father because he loves us with mercy and compassion. You know, God does not love us with the kind of love that passes, you know, in a season. But it's a love that is divine and incomprehensible. So we read in 1 John chapter 3, behold or see or look what manner of love the Father has given or has bestowed or has gifted unto us that we should be called the children of God. Behold, 
the writer seems to be saying. For this is a thing of magnificence. You know, how can we unpack that love? You know, we did not have enough time, but, but let us see a few snippets. We, we all have read Psalm 103. And in Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know, abounding, exploding with unshakable love. Yet he is slow to anger. In his mercy and grace, he does not treat us in the way we deserve to be treated for our sins and frailties. See, as a father shows compassion to his children, the psalmist says, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And in the New Testament, we see even more glimpses of this divine love. You know, Jesus says, the father knows what his children need even before we ask him. No need of ours is too small to escape his providence. Again, when we, when we look at the Jewish religion, you know, Jewish rabbis considered it disrespectful to associate God's providence with tiny things in life. They said, you are not supposed to pray to God to accomplish small things because that is disrespectful of his majesty or his awesomeness. And, and there's an example in, in if you read um, some of the Jewish literature, not in the Bible, they explicitly prohibited prayers that would ask God's mercy to extend even to a bird's nest. That's an example they give. Do not ask for God's mercy to extend to small things like a bird's nest. But then you see what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Then what does he say? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He's saying the smallest things in your life are under the providential care of the father. You know, we are his children in all senses of the word, in a manner that far exceeds the love and mercy of earthly parents. And yes, in his role as father, he sometimes disciplines those whom he loves. And we read that in the New Testament. But even that discipline is not out of anger. It's not out of a concern merely for his own status. But he says he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Even in his discipline, he is loving, he is compassionate, He's providential. He's always looking out for us. So I say, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Finally, how is he our Father? He's also our Father because he is our true home. And I'm, I'm kind of extending this metaphor a bit. You know, what is home? Home is our resting place. It is where, it is the place in this world where we do not have to strive. It is where all of our needs are met. You know, it is a place, as the saying goes, from which when a man has departed, he is a wanderer until he has returned. That is home. If you departed, you are a wanderer until you have returned. So where do we find our rest? Where are we striving to reach? God is our Father. He's the head of our family. But more than that, 
the Bible says he's also our hiding place, our secure abode. See, remember the prodigal son, you know, in the parable? He had frittered his life away, wandering the world, searching and striving to become someone that he was not, till he realized that all he ever needed was what he had left behind. So he turned back from his wandering, his searching and his striving, back to the bosom of his gracious and loving father, back home. You know, again, Psalm 103 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. That's it. That is the extent of our legacy, the reward for all of our toil on earth. And yet, for those of us who are privileged to call God Abba Father, that does not have to be a matter of fear. Rather, we can recognize that this is not our home, that our security is not tied to this world. Rather, we have a Savior who has promised us that in his and in our Father's house, there are many rooms. And there we have a place prepared for us, a place that will welcome us once the days of our struggle and our toil are over. Our true home. That is how God is a father to us. And so then we ask, how are we to be the children of God to this amazing father? Firstly, we are to submit to him and obey him completely. We are to submit to his will and obey him without exception. See, in our human families, when we turn, I know, like 18 or 19, and we leave the home, we consider ourselves independent of our parents, no longer under their authority. However, that is not a possibility with God. We do not have the option to disregard his will for us. His authority over us spans all the days of our life into eternity. And, and we are asked to submit to him completely. And in much of our culture today, submission is a dirty word. Because we crave for independence, for a lack of accountability for our actions, for freedom from expectations. But that is futile when you're dealing with the creator of the universe, him whose will is sovereign over every aspect of the created world. Therefore, as children, we are called to put aside our natural instinct to puff ourselves up, but rather to humble ourselves. That's what James says in uh, James chapter 4 and verse 7. Humble yourselves and submit yourselves to God. But that submission is not to a father who demands it because of his authority, merely because of his authority, but, because, but it is a submission to a loving, considerate, and faithful father who has promised to exalt us up and satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And if we claim to love the father, you know, we read in, uh, in Second John, we need to show that love by walking in his commandments. And our model in this aspect of sonship and daughtership is, is the divine son himself, Jesus Christ. We remember today morning, 
he came down to this earth not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. We read that his humble obedience extended to the point of dying for us on the cross. And that complete obedience, that complete submission, is what we are called to imitate as sons and daughters of the Father in heaven. Obedience to his word, obedience to his will. Secondly, as children, we are to be satisfied in his providence. One of the privileges of knowing God as our Father, as we, as we just uh, discussed, is that we can approach him as a child with open hands, asking him to meet our needs. And the testimony of the scripture is that God will indeed supply all our needs. Here's that famous verse, right? Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. But the human mind is so obsessed with wants and desires that the providence of God is often not enough. We want security in the provisions and comforts of the world. We believe that they are the solution to our yearning for stability and and security. But that is not true, as every person here over the age of perhaps 26 or 27 can attest. That is not true. You know, it was Bonhoeffer who once said that earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the very source of all anxiety. See, earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the source of all anxiety. Think about that. Isn't that true in our lives? See, that's why Jesus is so logical, and he gets straight to the point in his, in his famous speech on, on needs and anxiety in Matthew chapter 6. He says, why are you anxious? Can you add even an hour to your life by worrying? Rather, look at the birds and the lilies. They are provided for so wonderfully by the Father. How much more will he not provide for you? Do not be like the Gentiles who have no faith. Your Father knows what you need. So what does he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything you need will be taken care of. Everything you need, not necessarily everything you want, but everything you need. That's it. That's the Christian manifesto to worry-free living. And when we are continually anxious, when we are continually stressed, unless you have some kind of clinical condition, here's what we are saying. We are saying that we know that the Father loves us, but we do not believe it. We know that the Father is in complete control, but we do not trust him to do the right thing. We have heard that God will meet our needs, but we want to be doubly sure, extra sure, of our own provisions just in case he does not come through. Now, George Mueller once said that the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. As children of call, as children of God, we are called to exercise such faith in our lives 
faith that is confirmed by our knowledge of the Father, faith that is validated by the testimony of our own lives in the past, faith that trusts that he will meet all of our needs in the present, and faith that is secure in the knowledge that come what may, come what may, we have a home to go to in the future. Finally, as children of God, we are to show forth his glory. So one of the aspects of adoption, apart from our standing in Christ, is the work of the Holy Spirit within us to transform our natures into those that befit our status of being God's children. This is the work of regeneration, and it is also the gift of God. But at the same time, we are called to show the fruit of that work within us through our actions and lifestyles. We need to behave and conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of our identity as the children of God. So throughout the New Testament, we see many appeals for believers to portray the character of God accurately in their own behavior, in their own lives. So we say, be holy, for the God who has called you is holy. Be perfect, like your heavenly Father is perfect. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, the sons of God. Why are these appeals there? Because it is essential for Christians to display the glory of God the Father to a watching world. See, the world has rejected the revelation of God that is contained in nature, the revelation of God that is contained in Scripture. The children of men have rebelled against their father, and often the only evidence of God's beautiful fatherhood in this fallen world is the silent testimony of the character of his sons and daughters. Our lives are to show the love, the faithfulness, and the truthfulness that are characteristic of the Father. Our actions are to be the cornerstone of Christian influence in the world. Not, not words, not politics, but the actions and lifestyles of the children of God. You see, it's a great privilege to know the Father, to be adopted into his family as sons and daughters. It is also a tremendous responsibility. We are called to live like we belong to the family of God. But as children of God, we know that we are his, not because of our merit, but because of the work of the Son and of the regenerative activity of the Spirit. So we rest secure knowing that the Father has authority over us, that he loves us, that he has compassion for us, and that he's able to satisfy every need we have. In response, may we seek to live our lives in humble obedience to him and to be satisfied in his provision and to show forth his glory to a watching world. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for... um, the, the privilege to, to approach you, Lord, as a child would, to call you Abba and to, and to bring every cry of our hearts into your presence, O oh Lord. And we want to thank you that you have made yourselves known to us through the Son and through the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word that reveals to us daily about you and about the beauty of your character. Lord, we recognize a lot that many a times we are not confident, we are not secure in your fatherhood over us. But we pray, O Lord, that that you will take our worries and our anxieties away, that we may rest in the fact that you are our true home, Lord, that that we will submit ourselves completely to your will and to your word, and that we will not be found lacking 
in displaying a testimony to this world that shows what a beautiful father you are. And may that be, a lot, the inclination of our hearts and the desires of our mind a lot. And give us the strength and the, and the wisdom that is needed to do that as we step out into this world. We pray for our safety and for, uh, for our uh, continued uh, sustenance in this land. We ask all things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.